The famous Met General Manager Rudolf Bing once told soprano Leonie Riesenick that she would be singing Turandot at the Met, and she refused to sing the role, along with Brunhilde and other large Strauss and Wagner roles. Do you know why? Find out in today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. So why did Leonie Riesenick refuse to sing the role of Turandot? Because, as she said, there was always Birgit, wonderful Birgit, next to me. She, of course, was referring to the incredible soprano Birgit Nielsen, who today's lecturer, Ira Siff, had the opportunity to see perform live. In today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, join Ira as he discusses not only his experiences with Birgit Nielsen, but also other diva powerhouses like Maria Callas, Renata Scotto, and the incomparable Leontine Price. Welcome to part two of this Great Divas I Have Seen podcast. I'm Ira Siff, commentator of the Metropolitan Opera Broadcasts. The 1964-65 season at the Old Met brought a number of highlights, but all of them existed in the shadow of the return of Maria Callas to the house for the first time in seven years. In those years, a number of things had happened concerning Callas. She had left her husband, become the mistress of Aristotle Onassis, faced a severe vocal decline, overcome all the odds with triumphant returns to the stage in London and Paris in spectacular productions of Tosca and Norma by Franco Zeffirelli. And most of all, Callas had reached a point at which her supreme artistry was at long last recognized, ironically a bit too late in terms of her voice, but to the point that she was worshipped as no other opera singer had been probably in the 20th century. And the scarcity of her performances made the two promised Met Toscas even more precious, prompting a demand for tickets that made seeing either of the shows nearly impossible. I was incredibly fortunate to see both shows. I stood online in front of the old Met for three days, sleeping on the street for two nights to see the first one, and for the second, well, a friend of my mother's who didn't like Collis sold her her two tickets. To this day, I cannot believe my luck. I was going to see Callas and Tito Golbi bring their acclaimed Franco Zeffirelli staging and inserting it into the Met production. While we were all on the standing room line in the freezing cold in March, Franco Corelli, Callas's cover dossi for the first Tosca, appeared with his wife Loretta, their poodle Romeo, and a cart with hot coffee and donuts for the standees. As they worked their way through the line, Loretta would ask, Are you here for Callas or Corelli? Had the feeling if you said Callas, you got no coffee or donut, and the dog might even bite you. But I really wasn't there for Corelli, but I was terrified to say Callas. 
So when they got to me, I blurted out, Gobi. I got coffee, no donut, but no dog bite. The night Collis was scheduled to arrive in New York, a bunch of us took the bus to the airport to make sure she had actually come, and we greeted her with cheers as she emerged from immigration. But still, no one quite believed we were going to actually see Collis until we heard that inimitable voice sing the first Mario Marios from offstage. You see, those of us who were younger only knew and worshipped the diva from her recordings. We'd never actually seen her on stage. At those performances, when Kalas and Gobi sparred as, as Tosca and Scarpia in Act Two, I felt I was watching the real events upon which an opera was later based. Of course, the Kalas voice was a shadow of its earlier self, but the color and the phrasing were intact and the interpretation, both vocal and physical, was stupendous. The Visidarte did not have the vocal control at the climax that the Kalas of the past had had, but the aria provided the one break in Act Two, which the audience could applaud, and applaud we did, and screamed, brava, until it seemed everyone was hoarse. Here was an artist who had given everything, including her voice, to her art, given it to us, and here was an opportunity for us to thank her. We're going to hear Kala sing Visitarte in 1964 in London, capturing all of Tosca's deep sadness and dismay. Kalas was one who worshipped at the Shrine of Art. You might say that opera was her religion. This aria can operate on many levels. I had the feeling Kalas was imploring God to explain why someone so devoted to the purity of the art form she practiced could be repaid by losing so much of the necessary instrument, just as Tosca asked God why her piety is repaid by putting her in such danger and compromise. Visidarte is also the diva's one opportunity in this role for sustained singing, singing that might subconsciously show the audience who Tosca herself is as an artist. Callas reached all those levels and it was quite moving. Tito Gobi is her Scarpia. Chilario conducts Visitarte. Me, I 
If the Kalas comeback was an event that has remained with me for life, the voice of Leontine Price was something extraordinary, an event every time she shared it live. If Price was not a Kalas in terms of physical acting, she shared with Kalas the gift of an immediately recognizable sound coupled with an innate interpretive intensity with that sound. With Leontine, the voice was everything, and that was more than enough. My Leontine Price experiences at the Old House included the Trovatore Leonora, Elvira in Hernani, Tosca, and Aida. And from the last, we're going to hear the magic she and Carlo Bergonzi created in the tomb scene as they suspended time on one sustained note after another of immeasurable beauty in 1963, the most magnificent farewell to earth, o terra dio, imaginable. Georg Scholte conducted Ice Wound.
There were a number of debuts at the Met in its final season. Mirella Freni, Montserrat Caballé, Cheryl Milnes. Singers really wanted to perform in the old house before it was demolished. I went to them all, but perhaps for me the most extraordinary arrival was Renata Scotto. Scotto bowed in the house as butterfly, and her interpretation, physical portrayal, and vocal virtuosity were a revelation. So powerful was her spinto sort of sound as butterfly that we standees were certain Scotto would cancel the announced Lucia's to follow. I mean, how could she sing Lucia with that big voice? Well, she didn't. She sang it with her Lucia voice, more a bel canto instrument, which uh, she also lavished on Adina in Lelizia d'Amore that season as well. Scotto's Chocho's son was everything a Puccini heroine should be, vulnerable and believing, yet strong and resilient when the chips are down. From her ravishing entrance, capped by a D-flat diminuendo, to her final va gioca gioca as she took her own life, Scotto imbued every single phrase, every word, every note with life and artistry, making even the most hardened butterfly audience veteran feel they were hearing this role for the first time. From Scotto's debut Met broadcast, January 1st, 1966, we'll hear first her entrance as Butterfly ascends the hill from Nagasaki and Scotto ascends to Puccini's optional high D-flat, which she diminuendos. George Schick conducts.
rather than play the obvious Un Bel D, which was a masterpiece of description in Scotto's hands, I've opted for a less routine excerpt highlighting this diva's unique way with the role. We pick up in Act Two when Sharpless has just asked Butterfly what she would do should Pinkerton never return. Scotto sounds as if she's had the wind knocked out of her. She employs a toneless, white voice as she says she could return to being a geisha or, better yet, die. And she sings the aria Que tua madre to her little boy. But for Sharpless's benefit, declaring she would rather face death than take her child out and beg for food, singing for people in the wind and the rain. She'd rather cut her life short. We'll hear this Que Tua Madre, our second Renata Scotto butterfly excerpt from the broadcast of January 1st, 1966. not be fair to skip over Scotto's bel canto singing that season and hearing it in contrast to her gutsy butterfly only serves to point up the genius of this artist. So here is her Prendi per Messi Libero, Adina's aria from Donizetti's 
L'Elysir d'Amore, her veiled confession of love to Nemorino.
Not many divas make the front page of the New York Times when making their debut, but Birgit Nilsson achieved that honor. And as celebrated as she was for her Wagner portrayals, particularly Isolde and the various Brunhildes in the Ring Cycle, it was, a tour, it was as Turandot that the Swedish diva managed to virtually own a role that was Puccini rather than Wagner. Of course, some of this had to do with the unique demands Turandot makes compared with all other Puccini heroines, save perhaps Minnie in La Fanchula del West. Nilsson had it all, pinpoint, spinning, laser beam high notes, a powerful chest voice where needed, temperament, and stamina. Turandot's a relatively short sing, but a hugely demanding one. Nilsson always sounded as if she could just begin again and sing the opera twice. And, of course, her vocal war with Franco Corelli always added a layer of excitement. I had the pleasure of having lunch with Birgit in London once, and she regaled me with all the wonderful Franco stories. Her sense of humor was as legendary as her singing. My favorite is the one she tells about their curtain call in Turndot, when Franco appeared to be kissing her hand, but actually bit it. Birgit phoned Rudolf Bing the next day and said, Mr. Bing, I'm afraid I must cancel the next performance. I'm suffering from rabies. Let's listen to Nilsson and Corelli duke it out in the riddle scene from Puccini's Turandot, Leopold Stokowski conducts. Ich lasse ran, 
And that concludes part two of Great Divas I Have Seen. That was lecturer Ira Siff dazzling us with tales of his experiences witnessing some of opera's greatest divas. For more information on singers past and present, make sure to visit the Metropolitan Opera, the Metropolitan Opera Guild, and Opera News on your favorite social media platforms. I'm your host, Dr. Naomi Baratera. Thank you for listening.